So Malachi uh, chapter 3, verse 13. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said, it's futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper, and even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them, just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And, that, and the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on that day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would uh, speak to us Today, as, as we look at this uh, deeply relevant and challenging passage, we ask that your, the Holy Spirit would make these words that I speak alive and drive them into each and every one of our hearts. And we pray, Lord, that you would uh, work through these words to grow us to look more and more like Jesus and to root us in the strength of the unchanging eternal God who we worship this morning. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you've been at JVC for more than, say, a month, you know that I like to use illustrations from the outdoors. And I try not to use too many of them, but sometimes it's, it's really hard. I was talking with one member of the church who's since moved away, and she said one of the things she really liked about JVC that she missed was she felt like not only does she learn about God, but also wilderness survival. <laughs> uh, and today I, I think I'm going to have to use another outdoor illustration back, as I talked about in the kids' message, after graduating college in 2004, and I had a summer off before I was starting some training with the Marine Corps. And somewhere during that time, I'd gotten this desire to through-hike the Colorado Trail. So this is a, a trail that runs from Denver and kind of traverses across the mountains, goes along the Continental Divide, and then ends in Durango in the southwest corner of the state. And I enjoy challenges. I enjoy being outside in the wilderness with myself, with my own thoughts. But at five days in on that backpacking trip, I distinctly remember it was a beautiful day and everything was perfect, but I felt miserable. I was thinking, why in the world did I do this? Uh, I was tending to my bloody feet. And I remember just getting so depressed because as I looked at my feet, I was wondering how are these things ever going to heal when there's already new blisters forming under the old ones? It felt like a per perpetual just string of blisters. I was tired. I was hungry. And I remember thinking at the, that moment, I'm an idiot. <laughs> Why in the world would I be out here? 
I wanted to be done. Durango seemed impossibly far. I didn't know if my body would hold up. Now, two weeks earlier, I was nothing but excited for the trip. I had visions of me you know, frolicking through these alpine meadows to the sound of music, but now I lay in the dirt, feet bleeding, back aching, and I just wanted to go home. Now, probably most of you haven't uh, gone backpacking for weeks on end, but I bet you felt the same way. You wonder, is it worth it? You probably ask that with a lot of things, but I'm guessing every one of us at some point asks that question about our faith. Is it worth following God on this journey? Why am I doing this? We have a lot of newer Christians at this church, and many of you, you know, when you first started following God, you feel alive, and your life is transformed, and everything is amazing, but then one day it seems to change. Maybe you fall into some of the same old sins you thought you'd grown out of. Uh, Maybe God starts to seem impossibly distant, and you wonder if you somehow made a mistake. Some of you are trying to follow God in difficult situations, maybe at work, Uh, You're trying to do the right thing, and the odds seem stacked against you. You're trying to do the right thing with your family, and yet it seems like it's only making things worse. Others of you have had such struggles in life, deep depression, just one thing after another going wrong, and God seems silent. Your pain is more real than God's love. And at some point, we all ask, is following God worth it. We're coming near the end of our series through the book of Malachi called, Does God Still Care? And this is really the culmination of everything we've looked at so far. That is following God worth it? Does God still care about me? Why do I care about him if it doesn't seem like he cares anything about me? And here's what I want us to remember. To keep going, keep the faith, God will make everything right. Keep the faith, God will make everything right. And we're going to look at this three ways. First, challenges to the faith, the judgment of God, and then the healing of God. So first, challenges to the faith. Now, if you've been with us, you recognize this uh, series, start, or this section starts out very similar to every other section in the book of Malachi, where God makes some pronouncement. Here, in this passage, it's, you have spoken arrogantly against me. And the people are saying, well, how? And then God answers, you have said, it's futile to serve God. And I like how the New Living Translation translates the second half of verse 14. What have we gained by obeying God's commands or trying to show the Lord that we're sorry for our sins? They're saying, following God hasn't made my life any easier. Being worried about my own sins and failures has just made me feel worse about myself. And the people are done. Verse 15. Now, though, we don't call us blessed. We call the arrogant, those who don't believe in God, blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper. And when they put God to the test, they get away with it. It's like they're saying, we used to think that following God was a good thing. It was the right thing to do. But for years, it's just made our life harder. And these people who reject God, these people who mock God, seem to be better off than us. Maybe if we put it in more modern terms. Yep, they don't have to give a chunk of their money to the church They aren't giving up half of their weekends to go to worship God. They aren't feeling guilty about their sins. Their lives look a lot more blessed than ours. And then when I look at my own life, that is full of pain and suffering, 
Following God doesn't seem to have done anything to lift that weight of suffering. It's like they're sitting there five days into their backpacking trip and thinking, you know what? We could be on a beach in Cabo right now. What were we thinking? There's a lot of talk these days about deconstructing someone's faith. You've probably heard the term. You know, it's kind of the idea. You can think of it very literally. Right? It's someone who is building their life upon Christianity and think of it like a building. But then one day they start to ask those questions. Is this really worth it? Maybe I've been constructing my life on the wrong land. And so they decide to take that screwdriver out and pull out all those screws, take down those boards, and take it apart and move it to greener pastures, somewhere where they think their life will be better. And it can be hard to live as a Christian today. You know, Christian sexual ethics can seem so far out of date and out of touch, even harmful to some. Like the idea that you should wait to marriage for sexual intimacy I mean, certainly doesn't seem like a blessed life. Or the idea that marriage is only between one man and one woman seems unloving to so many today. Or the idea that there's only one God and Jesus is the only way to him raises a lot of questions about all these other people in our world, many of whom seem to be good people and some of whom seem to be much better than some Christians. Often, though, I think it's much more personal. I'm trying to follow God, but my marriage still fell apart. I'm trying to do what is right, but I've still suffered the third miscarriage. I'm wanting to honor God, but I'm still alone and single. I thought God loved me, but why does each day bring another disappointment and deeper pain? And you look around at other people who aren't worried about pleasing God or worshiping Him, and it looks like their lives are much more blessed. And I want you to see that this struggle's nothing new. We're not the first generation of Christians to ask these questions and to struggle with these doubts. Here, some 2,500 years earlier, the followers of God were wrestling with those very same things. And if you look at, in Scripture, we see it's one of the most common themes we have. Psalm 13, O Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? Psalm 73. For I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. They seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They don't have troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. And what should we do when you feel this way? When you struggle and wonder if this journey is worth it? Verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other. The Lord listened and heard. This highlights that importance of Christian community, talking with each other, where people can feel safe to cry out those words of Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me? And those people are not looked as, as weak in the faith, but are honest about how hard it can be to be a Christian. We need to be a community, this church, where people can be honest 
about their struggles and their doubts and where they're wrestling with God. It's one of the reasons why the church is important and why connecting with people in the church beyond just Sunday mornings is so important. One of our goals here at the church is for every person to be part of a group, uh, whether it's a community group that meets Sunday nights or one of our other groups that meets throughout the week, that this is a place where those deeper relationships can form, where you can give voice to your doubts, give voice to your struggles. Other people can hear you and encourage you, and we can come together to realize you're not alone. And if you're not part of a group, talk to me or Pastor Wes or one of the elders. Well, connect you with one. The purposes of these groups, it's to remind each other, keep the faith, don't give up, where we can bandage each other's wounds, where we can carry each, other pa- each other's packs when we're too weak. Though we don't know what dark valleys lie ahead, we can tell each other, but we're walking together. Let's keep going. And this brings us then to our second point, the judgment of God. God responds in verse 17, on that day when I act, they will be my treasured possession. And what is that action going to be? Verse 18, and you will again see distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. And this is part of the problem right now, right? It's hard just to look at people's life to see how people are doing between those who serve God and those who do not. It's hard to stay on the path when it seems like you're on the trail that's really hard and it's just making your life harder and it doesn't look like it goes any place better. It's kind of like all of humanity is living on credit right now. If you have a credit card, it can be a great tool, but it can also allow you to live beyond your means. Loans allow you to buy things you can't afford today. And it's like God has allowed all of humanity to live on his credit, his grace. People are able to live beyond their means. People are able to live in ways that are not in line with God's design, and they seem to get away with it because they're living on this credit. And it can make their lives even seem happier than most because they're getting away with all this in the same way that someone who maybe has got a bunch of credit cards and is living it up seems to have the life, even though you don't know the whole story. But God is saying, one day I will call in all those debts. And that is what that day of judgment is. And it will be clear who's been living their life on credit. That where everyone has to pay for what they've done, what they failed to do. The language of God's judgment can make us feel uneasy, probably rightly so. But at the same time, it's also a comforting teaching Because, I don't need to tell you this, lots of people get away with doing bad things. Our world is full of darkness. Most of you know, I did two deployments in Iraq, and there I saw firsthand the darkness of this world. Some of you have lived in other countries, or you just need to look at the news, and you see lots of innocent people get killed every day. There are many kids who never get to celebrate their 10th birthday. Human trafficking is rampant. People are sexually assaulted. Kids are molested by someone they were supposed to be able to trust. People can live with an abusive spouse for years and no one knows about it. Financial fraud is common, whether it's just getting scammed online or 
putting your savings in a bank or some exchange that's supposed to be stable only to realize it was all a fraud and everything has evaporated. Our world is dark. And people seem to get away with doing wrong all the time. Justice is rarely served. And you can look at all the tears and ask, where are you, God? Have you taken your hands off the wheel? And it can rarely feel like there's a distinction between those who are righteous and those who are wicked. Or if there is a distinction, it often feels like the wicked have a better life than those who are trying to do the right thing. And this is why God's judgment is a comfort. It's why we need to keep the faith, because the faith that we keep is knowing that one day those scales will be leveled. One day everything will be made right. The evil that is in our world is not an argument against God. God is aware of it. It's why he tells us in our passage, a day is coming. It means this won't last forever. A day is coming. And for whatever reason, God seems to just put some very big spending limits on some people's accounts so they can run and run and run with it. But one day, it'll be called to account. And the evil that pulses in the darkness and that breaks into our lives will be turned to ashes. That's what this hard language is in our passage. They will be stubble. Not a root or branch will be left to them. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on that day when I act. (coughs) I don't want to minimize this. This is a tough teaching. But at the same time, it's hopeful. Because it shows God will bring an end to evil. God will bring an end to the suffering that is in our world. It will become ash. Think of ash. It has no weight. It can't even hurt an ant. For those of you whose hearts are heavy because of the darkness in our world, it will not be this way forever. For those of you whose hearts have been wounded by the evil in our world, it will get better. And the hard reality here in our passage is that for those who hold on to evil will meet the same end as it. If you refuse to let go of evil, you will be drugged down with it. And the problem is that none of us are innocent. The seed of evil runs through us all. And for a number of reasons that we don't understand, that sin manifests itself in various ways in different people. Right? For some, it leads to horrendous atrocities. For others, it, it maybe is just a life of continual gossip behind a smile. But Christians aren't those who just point the finger at others and say, look how bad they are, glad we're not like them. But we're people who first recognize that we are no different than the worst of them. And that the evil that runs through them runs through us. We are all sinners. We are all guilty. And it's so easy for us then, because evil runs through us all, to get sucked into the very evil that we've experienced. To let the wounds of others excuse, or let serve as excuses for how then we treat those after us. 
to let a refusal to forgive someone slowly erode your soul, to let bitterness stamp out the light in your life, or to let a self-righteousness that says, well, I'm glad I'm not like them, blind you to the sin that still shows you that you're still a far way from God. Uh, Miroslav Volf, uh, who's written a lot of helpful material on this issue of suffering and justice and, and judgment, he says, victims need to repent of the fact that all too often they mimic the behavior of their oppressors and let themselves be shaped into the mirror image of the enemy. And this is a hard teaching. This isn't to minimize the greater evil that you maybe have experienced, but it's to say you cannot forget that in that, you are a sinner too. And if you let those wounds and those sins against you, let those things go unchecked, they will so often morph into something dark as well. It's why there's cycles of perpetual violence around our world. But more personally, in the ways that you've been wronged, what ways are you tempted or what ways do you see yourself turning into the mirror image of those who have hurt you? In what way do you use the things that have happened to you to excuse your own reactive behavior against others? Again, this isn't to excuse those who have sinned against you, those who have deeply wounded you. It's, it's to not let you, to let us, miss the fact that the sin that runs through them also runs through every one of us. And those who refuse to acknowledge their own sin will one day be drugged down with it. That day is coming. And what is the hope? What is the path forward so that we aren't all drugged down with it? Repentance. Repentance is one of the cornerstones of the Christian life. Uh, Wolf goes on to say that repentance is the only way to restore your humanity. Think about that. He says that though victims may not be able to prevent hate from springing to life, for their own sake, they can and they must refuse to give it nourishment and strive to weed it out. You give hate life by refusing to forgive others, by holding on to unfaith unhealthy anger, by letting it control your reactions right now. You give it life by growing self-righteousness and saying, well, I would never be like them. And this is why repentance is so key. It's the key to forgiveness. Repentance is that acknowledgement where you say, I'm a sinner. Yeah, I've been sinned against, but I'm a sinner too. And it's where you let go of that sin and place it in Jesus' hands. And it's where he is judged for your wrongdoings. Isaiah 53, he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that has brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Again, Wolf writes, the open arms of Christ on the cross are a sign that God does not want to be a God without the other. That's us. And he suffers humanity's violence in order to embrace us. And you can forgive people 
Even if they don't ask for forgiveness, you can forgive them before God because you know that justice will be served, even if it never happens on this life. No one gets away with wrongdoing forever. And forgiveness doesn't forgo justice. It frees you from being drugged down by the anger of what has happened to you and says, God will take care of it. I'll give it to him. What's the way to stop the cycle of sin? To stop one generation's victims becoming the next generation's perpetrators? It is to bring your sin and their sin to the foot of the cross and say, Jesus, I give it to you to fix. And third, God's healing. Verse 2, But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. I just want to think about this imagery for a moment. One of the best parts about the mornings when you're backpacking is that moment when the sun crests over the hill and lights up that valley where you've been sleeping in a cold night. And it melts the frost in a moment. It warms your face. Have you ever basked in the rays of the sun on that winter day that tells you spring is coming? The sun has healing. You feel it. You feel its warmth. On that day when I was backpacking a number of years ago, when I was questioning my sanity, I took a nap, I ate some food, and I said, all right, I'll give it one more day. And I kept saying, one more day, one more day, one more day, until eventually my feet miraculously did start to heal, and I got stronger, and I got to the point I knew I'd make it. And some four weeks later, I got to the trailhead, and I saw my car, and I ran, or probably more likely hobbled, there, and it was one of the best feelings in my life. I had just completed this journey, and it was hard, and there was a lot of suffering, but it was worth it. And that's the Christian life, too. But then our passage actually says, but it's going to be even better than that. It says, you will frolic like a well-fed calf and a child. For some of us, maybe many of us, our frolicking days are long past, right? You're happy to just be able to get out of your seat without too much of a struggle. The older we get, the less we frolic. But not just because our bodies ache, but because our hearts are weighed down with the world and the stresses of life and the things we've suffered. And God tells you when you feel like, I don't know if I'll ever jump for joy again. He says, oh no, one day you'll run and jump and do somersaults like a kid again. A couple of years ago, Luke had just recently turned two, and we were doing a family hike. And it was the first hike where Luke could walk for pretty much all of it. Or more accurately, he was frolicking the entire way. And it was only like a two-mile hike, but it took forever. Not because he was, it was slow, but because he was amazed by everything as he ran to and fro to observe every little thing on the trail. Right? And he was so excited about it. He would say, look, a rock, bird, airplane. His favorite thing to find at that stage of his life was roly-polies, and he'd gotten this bug jar from his aunt, and before long he'd collected like 50 roly-polies in it. And every rock on the trail, he felt the need to step up on it and say, Daddy, look, and then jump off it with a big smile on his face. Right? And it was frustrating, but it was cute, 
and every single thing was amazing to him. A snail, though, would have finished that hike faster. But those of you who have kids, you know that. You've seen that. You know that joy. But you also know how fast it fades. Because we grow up. Right? And there comes a time when your kid comes home from, home from school with tears in their eyes because of something that happened and you can't fix it. And soon the weight of the world rests on your shoulders and on your heart. And it's hard to jump for joy. You wish you could be like a kid again. You wish you didn't have to worry about all the things you're worrying about right now. And what our passage shows us is that that day is not just long in your past, but when you are in Christ, that day is coming. God will make all things new. And it includes you. You will run with a lightness you haven't known since you were two years old. And God's saying, keep the faith. Stay on this trail. You'll make it home. One day, you'll leap again. Evil will be burned to ash. No one can be hurt again. And God will wipe away all the tears. I like Eugene Peterson's translation of the end of Psalm 30. He says, God, you did it. You changed my wild lament into whirling dance. You ripped off my black mourning band and decked me with wildflowers. I'm about to burst with song. I can't keep quiet about you. God, my God, I can't thank you enough. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would help give us a sense of that joy. Uh, Lord, we can't have the weight of this world removed from us because we are still in it. Bad things still hurt. Our, our hearts ache. They're suffering. But Lord, we pray that you would give us just a little glimpse today as we worship you of what it's like to have all that weight taken off. Give us just a little bit more spring in our step as we sing to you as a reminder of what's coming. That Lord, though we wait a long time right now, we will not wait forever. Lord, Hold us fast. Be with us as we walk on this journey and help us to make it home. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.